Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to interview Andy and Tammy Fleming from Kiev, and now currently they're in Seattle, Washington. Andy and Tammy, thank you for joining the show. Pleasure. Great, great to be with you, Rob. Now, Andy, like I, I, uh, I know we've talked about this before, but you guys have been part of the history of the International Church of Christ and some of the most amazing miraculous things that God has done in both Scandinavia and especially the former USSR. Uh, I want to cover all that, but let me, let's go ahead and go back and just share, if you could, how you guys became Christians. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it would be safe to call me a kingdom kid. I grew up in the churches of Christ and uh, all my life I've wanted to be a missionary. So uh, that was based in my just sort of what was going on in my own family. My dad was a successful businessman and where he enjoyed what he enjoyed more than anything to do with his money was actually to support church work. So we had these missionaries come through and that sort of planted the seed in my mind. It was one of the main things. Um, I went out on the mission field at the age of 21, went to Papua New Guinea. Uh, I returned about seven months later and, uh, began doing some postgraduate work in linguistics and was actually thinking about being a Bible translator. But the truth was I was having some personal issues in my own life. Uh, I would say mostly due to a lack of intimate discipleship and relationship with, with other Christians. So um, yeah, God worked a few things. I had some, some crises and relationships and I was as working through those. I got to be, friends with a, a young man who'd been out with a youth with a mission group and had all this these ideas about discipleship that I had not really heard before. And so we got talking and uh, we started to meet in a pretty uh, you know, consistent way and started having confession time and prayer time, et cetera. And uh, right about a little bit after this, when uh, I was already making some changes based on those relationships, uh, it was 1982, and Boston was hosting its first World Missions Conference. Uh, the church at that time would have been under 500 members, the congregation in Boston. But I went down with my parents uh, to check out what was going on, and there heard what we would call the discipleship study preached. And just listening to that call to 100% commitment uh, really cut my heart. It, it really made me think that that though I'd made some big decisions and was willing to take some big risks and, and lay some things out there for God, I'd not really surrendered 100% to him. So um, it, this was about to get tested because at the moment I was engaged to be married and should have been getting married about seven months after that visit to Boston. And this was so, not to me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't to Tammy. And, uh, uh, I, and so I came home and I just, you know, said to this girl that had already agreed to go back out on the mission field with me, um, that, you know what, we needed to, we, we sort of talked about going for a while and then coming back, but I just said, you know, I don't feel like we should put any limit on what God could do, and uh, I think we need to be open to whatever, and, uh, you know, then started 
you know, introducing into our life a little more spiritual interaction in our relationship. And uh, I made a pledge of purity that we, you know, we weren't immoral, but we definitely weren't living the way we should. And so, uh, you know, we upped the, upped the game. And, and three weeks later, in great frustration on her part, she said the most bewildering thing to me. She said, I now realize you don't love me. And the funniest thing is I was actually feeling like I was learning how to love her better than I had any time up to that moment. And But the point was that now, for sure, very clearly, Jesus had become number one. Right. And she wasn't number one. And oddly, she broke up with me. Now, the most amazing thing, too, is I've been praying for to know God's will in these kind of decisions, especially about who to marry. And I thought I'd figured this out, but her response to the fact of me just wanting to be a 100% disciple, it was like, wow, she's not the one I should marry. Wow. And so she broke it up. I didn't try to fix it. I just accepted that and actually walked away from it thinking for the first time in my life, I know God's will about a relationship. And I was just amazed by this clarity that came. And uh, I, I later would you know, see a, a fulfillment of scripture in this. Um, and that's where Jesus told his, his disciples that uh, for them, the, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed, that they would be given understanding, but to those on the outside. And, and it says to those who were with him, who were following him. And I think it's like John 8, 31, when you follow, you gain insight into wh why and how you're following. A blessing comes in just making the decision. So right. uh, I am grateful. I believe Tammy is grateful that um, <laughs> I made that decision and uh, everything became clear. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that, that, that was the beginning of a year of repentance. And uh, a few months onward, I was studying the Bible with a friend. And this is sort of the moment where uh, a, a, another revel, revelatory moment. I was studying light and darkness with a young man who'd been baptized as a baby and um, showed him uh, very clearly from Scripture. He agreed that infant baptism was not biblical baptism. And uh, what was interesting then was he said, yeah, it's right. I didn't repent. You got to repent first. I can see that. And then he looked at me and said, but. But from your story, you only repented nine months ago. Did you, did you really repent before you got baptized? So it was a little bit of a counterattack, <laughs> but I, uh, I believe it was God speaking because as I looked at him, which is the Bible between us, and this guy didn't know any, he didn't know anything about the Bible except what I had just shared with him in the past few weeks. And I'm like, you know what? He was completely right. He was looking at the Bible with complete pure eyes. And he was correct. And so I went off and, and really studied and thought about it. And as a result, was baptized. And uh, he was baptized three weeks later. And uh, Boy, so that, that, that really shows some humility on your part that you're willing to simply look at the scripture and then make a personal correction on the spot. Well, knowing that I'm a prideful person, I'd hate to say yes to that. <laughs> 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 that's a trap <laughs> I know. that's a little bit of a trap, it's a trap. <laughs> that's a great uh, story I will, I will actually say that the word of god is just sharper than anyone actually imagines that's, that's right what i would like to say that's an inspiring story how about you tammy 
Well, I, unlike my husband, I was not, uh, I was not raised in a Christian home. I always believed in God though. I don't know why. I don't know why it's a gift. Um, I was an only child. My dad died young. My mom died and, uh, I have no brothers or sisters. So I actually went on sort of a, right after my mom's death, a period of seeking and got very frustrated with God because I felt like, uh, Everybody gave me a different answer. I felt like I was reading the Bible. I was praying, fasting. I was trying to keep the Sabbath as in the fourth commandment, right? The Friday night to Saturday night Sabbath. And I felt like I was coming up empty and just getting more, more questions and seeing all kinds of hypocrisy. And I remember I shouted a prayer at God saying, can you not see that I'm looking for you? Can you not make this any easier? If I'm ever going to find you, you are going to have to do it because I cannot do it. And in my mind, I just gave up. But I actually think God was waiting for that honesty on my part. <laughs> and uh, a couple of months after that, uh, Andy Fleming invited my then boyfriend on the street to study the Bible. And he became a Christian in two weeks. I became a Christian in two weeks. And we're all still faithful. Praise God. So wow. that's what happened with me. And that was in Boston. Yep, that was in Boston. Okay. Okay. So but Andy, you're you're Canadian, right? I'm Canadian, yep. Okay. So you were raised on a farm. Can you tell me a little bit about it's quite an interesting story from what I've heard about your your upbringing and uh, your your parents' farm. Well, I think I think the the farm was pretty simple. It it was uh Historically kind of interesting. Um, well, the Church of Christ uh, came up into Canada in the early 1830s, and it was actually my little county that was one of the center hotspots for the Churches of Christ. Uh, and um, that farm was who we bought it from in 1843 was actually the treasurer of the Church of Christ. Uh and I had other, my I had another great grandmother, not the Fleming side, who actually became a Christian in the 1830s, and uh, then my uh, Fleming side married into it uh, with my grandfather was converted, married into it. So uh, he, my grandfather Fleming, started off saying he didn't believe, have any religious affiliation, and then uh, became a member of the Church of Christ, but. Uh, so we have a long history because we've been on the same property uh, soon 200 years. And uh, this farm, which is about 50 acres, uh, my grandfather and then my father used that acreage because it ended up becoming the town. So that farm ended up being good collateral for investing in the chicken industry, which my dad specialized in. The same year he was born, his father bought a chicken incubator the size of a kitchen oven and i believe in their first month probably produced under a thousand chicks i mean just a, you know hundreds of chicks and uh by the time my dad retired in the early 90s uh, he was producing 34 million chicks a year that's incredible so he bit off a pretty big piece of uh the canadian chicken market and uh at that time, that's more chickens per year than there was population of Canada. <laughs> so, so the fun, the great thing about my dad, he, I, I just admire him so much because he, he built when he was 17 years old. He and his mother built a house that then his mom moved out of. My mom 
when they got married, moved into, and she's still there 70 years later. Um, but he used his wealth for the church. In other words, uh, he lived and died in that same house. It was quite modest compared to his financial possibilities. Mm. And uh, he, he really just got the greatest pleasure out of uh, supporting benevolence and supporting mission work. Like this, wow. this was really what, what excited him. That's so, so cool. uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it was a very inspiring person. He, he was a very strong introvert, uh, which actually I can relate to completely. <laughs> um, it, he, he's, he was, but, but he had an idea that if you just do things well, then the best result will happen. In other mm. words, he, I don't feel like he was worried so much about the, end result as he was about the how you do it wow. like he was a refiner of his methodology so like i grew up on a farm that was being very well studied and monitored to be the best it could be and not just about making money but to be a good a good farmer you know so i learned a lot about statistics and numbers and and that kind of thing from my dad because he was constantly assessing uh how well things were working. So the focus was on the process, not not necessarily the, the product or the pr- production amount. Yeah, I think he was much more about process than mm-hmm. he was about what the end result would be. Obviously, they're connected in some way, but uh, it was more about the quality of what he was doing. And so, yeah, he, he wasn't uh, didn't act too quickly. He was kind of slow, deliberate, and steady. And... Uh, I felt like uh, he, he passed uh, five years ago, but I feel like I, I had a very much a Proverbs dad That's who, so cool. uh, who really kind of lived out his financial and spiritual life uh, with that kind of wisdom. Yeah. When I, in the early 90s, late 80s, your names first came onto my radar in regards to the mission team to the former Soviet Union, and that was such an ex- inspiring um, mission team, and I know is so explosive. I'd, li- I'd like to share, I'd like you to share a little bit about some of the highlights from that for many of the people that were not around during that time. But what? How did you end up going there? What was the the path that took you on that mission team to 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 Moscow? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, it was never on my heart at any time in my life to go to <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Uh, when I was in university in the 70s, late 70s, I was invited to go smuggle Bibles into the Eastern Bloc countries. It, it sounded exciting, but wasn't. I, I didn't take the take the bait. I wanted to go live in the third world. I think mostly, having grown up in Canada, I had a sense that where things were tough economically, there'd be more faith. I think that's a biblical principle too. There'd be more humility and faith. So. Um, the irony of this is that the last place on earth I wanted to be in the full-time ministry at that time would have been Canada. Hmm. Well, uh, in Boston, there was a mission team set to go to Sweden. And uh, this would have been the fifth planting from the Boston church. And uh, I had moved to Boston in 1983. And for the 11 months following, I watched the leadership interview and ask and tap shoulders of people to be a co-leader of this mission team to Sweden. Uh, And uh, Fred Fowler was the designated leader, and he was looking for a partner. 
And what happened was it was early August 1984. I was just praying up on uh, early morning prayer up on the roof of my building. And uh, I was going through the back of the Boston Bulletin and praying for the various house church leaders. And I got to Fred's name and I just said, look, Lord, I don't get it. Fred's a great guy. Uh, Sweden's a great country. And I just read that morning uh, the passage in Ezekiel that uh, talks about I looked for someone to stand uh, you know, in the, in the, the gap in the wall, but I couldn't find anybody. Right. And, uh, you know, it's uh, 22 verse 30. And, uh, I, I was saying, I started using those words in my prayer. I said, God, what kind of excuses are people making to not go with Fred? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I was, I wasn't thinking about myself at all initially. And I just kept kind of saying, it's a, it's a great country. Uh, Fred's a great guy, and there's some other great people on the team. Uh, why won't someone volunteer? Why won't they stand in the gap? What excuse are they making? And then I didn't hear any voice or anything, but in my heart, <laughs> I felt like, okay, if I'm really going to pray this prayer, and I'm challenging everyone but myself, okay? So, okay, you know, and, and I, I kind of looked up and I said, well, but God, I don't want to go because I want to go live in the third world. I mean, that can't be wrong, right? I want to go live in the third world. And I, and I started arguing with God uh, about this. And uh, I spent 10 minutes making my excuse why that gap in the wall wasn't for me. And then I looked up and I said, okay, okay, I, I get it. I, I, this, is, I'm, this is not right. Okay, I surrender. Tomorrow, I was an intern in the church. Tomorrow at staff meeting, I'm going to go up to the leadership and volunteer <laughs> to go on the mission team with Fred. And I kind of look up into heaven with a little smile and I said, is that good enough? And, <laughs> and I felt affirmed. Yep. That's, that's good enough if you're willing to do that. So anyways, the next day I woke up and uh, started getting ready to go to the staff meeting. And then, you know how you kind of feel sometimes when you've made a decision one day and you sleep on it. I kind of was like, how am I going to bring this up to these guys? No one's asking me to go to Stockholm. Right. Um, who am I? And they're going to ask me, I mean, I'm going to tell them about this prayer. I, I sound like a crazy person, you know, like, so I wrestled all the way to staff meeting. And uh, after staff meeting took Bob Gimple aside, I was, I was choosing between Bob or Al and I chose Bob. Uh, and I said, you know, Bob, I got something to tell you. And so I told him about my prayer and Bob kept a poker face completely through this whole little talk. And I just expected him to, to laugh and go, that's ridiculous, or you know, but he didn't respond at all except to say, Hey, let me call Al over here and I want you to tell him exactly what you just told me. And so he brought Al over and I explained the whole thing again. But Al was like, Al's eyes just got wider and wider and wider. And I finished and he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Well, I guess you're going to Sweden. And I said, What are you guys talking about? And he goes, well, we stopped. We made a decision two weeks ago to not ask anybody more. And we've been praying and fasting that God would put it on someone's heart and that they would come and volunteer. Wow. So I went home very upset. <laughs> going to Sweden is the last place I wanted to go. But who could argue with God, right? So I'm, I'm going home, and I decide on my way home to stop at the bookstore and buy a map of the Nordic countries, and and I, bu I buy a map, and I go, because I, I, I don't even know where I'm going, because <laughs> I'm now going in three weeks. It's all done. It's, it's a done deal. 
So I come back and I start praying over this map. And I, I, I again, made a prayer commitment. I'm going to pray for the capital cities on this map. And they were marked by big stars. And so I started on the west and went across, you know, uh, Reykjavik, Oslo, Copenhagen, uh, Stockholm, then Helsinki. And there was then the Soviet Union, and there was a cut in the frame of the map so that Moscow would actually be on the map. It wouldn't have been there because of the, fr the, the rim on the map, but they kind of made a groove and put Moscow there. And so I, I, I had to pray for it because I said I'd pray for every capital city on the map, and Moscow was the unexpected one. And after three days of praying about it, I then uh, met up with the church leaders again and said, you know, this is going to sound really weird. But I think God wants me to go to Moscow. So oh that was my gosh. that that's how Moscow got on my heart uh, at that World Missions Conference in 84. Wow. Uh, I actually was in Sweden when the missions conference happened and flew back just for the weekend to be at the conference, did a class on communism and reaching out to com. I started reading about it. And uh, that was the beginning for the next seven years. There were a number of bumps along the way, but basically the prayer of wanting to go to Sweden, uh, sorry, and then go to Russia was honored. And God did amazing things. Uh, the guy who was my right hand in Moscow, uh, Misha Rakovshik, was converted in Copenhagen. Hmm. And I, you probably don't have time for that. That's another whole story wow. of just amazing prayer that uh, God answered. Well, you guys went in, what was it, 1990 or 1991 to... to... It, it was... Yeah, 1991. Okay, so you formed a team in Los Angeles, and you you were sent out. Give me the highlights. Just tell me about that explosive growth, especially for those that, that were not around during that time or missed that period. I mean, it was just unprecedented, unparalleled in terms of radical growth. Can you give me some highlights? Tammy, do you want to share a little bit about the kind of people that were on the team? Uh, briefly. You should really do this, though. This is your forte. <laughs> um, I mean, we had five Soviet citizens that were on the team, and so five people spoke, uh, naturally spoke Russian. The rest of us, um, there were two that had studied at university, and they were competent in Russian. And the rest of us were just infants. Mm. You know, I think I'd had nine Berlitz lessons and could, you know, couldn't ask anything or say anything. So, and it, most everyone was between the ages of 18 and 22. So we took a group of teenagers and very young adults uh, into the Soviet Union. I know most people don't know what the Soviet Union was, but I honestly believe that because it was such a fascination for so long, there was a Cold War going on at that time, um, you know, for years and years, anyone who, who grew up in the United States or ever watched English-speaking movies saw the Russians as villains because they always cast the Russians as villains, right? They were right. our arch enemy for, you know, ever since the fifties or before, right? The whole century, the whole last century, they were the villains. And so I honestly think we had such incredible success, which Andy can tell you about because the whole world, anybody who was an English speaker, I think was praying for that young team. And so we went with 17 people and Andy can tell you yeah. the amazing things that happened. Yeah, so of those 17 as well, uh, six of them had been Christians for less than seven months. And so uh, Tammy and I were, uh, you know, we'd been in the ministry, but then the next trained person with us had been a campus intern, uh, but only for a few months. So he, 
that, that was the only other trained person. The team was actually a bunch of brave, wonderful mm-hmm. young people who actually were willing to do something radical. Mm-hmm. And uh, God really blessed it. So we had 17 people. Um, sadly, two of those 17 were actually people that had were uh, from the outside of Moscow. They'd been converted on, on while on some trips to England, repeated trips to England. But uh, they really had a hard time with being committed to what the church was trying to accomplish and sadly uh, didn't last very long. So in all actuality, the team was really 15 people. Wow. Uh, and, um, but it's amazing because in that first year, uh, if we say 17, we, we had exactly 850 baptisms. 850. Which, which is 50 baptisms per original team member, so to speak. Uh, but that's not really how it happened. It isn't that every team member converted 50 people. What really happened is that from the, from the get-go, uh, people that we met began to work with us in evangelism even long before they were baptized. Um, now, it's true that people were able to be baptized fairly quickly. Uh, they were pretty blank. I think we spend a lot of time when we study the Bible with people trying to unlearn certain misconceptions about scripture right uh these are former soviet citizens they don't they don't have any conceptions about scripture (laughs) misconceptions are good conceptions it's all new to them so and they were also very highly literate a lot of people don't know that the the former soviet union uh, early education was superb and so their young people read like uh it's just amazing 100 percent literacy so we would hand these people a bible and they actually read it. They would come back after just a few days and said, I've read the entire New Testament. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So it, we had a third world economy, but actually a first world education system. Hmm. And actually, those are two pretty important. Right. The church to really spread in a very significant way. Because a third world econ- economy meant, to be quite honest, even if people wanted to work, there wasn't any work. Like, there was only so much someone could do every day. Right. And especially in the organized Soviet world, it was all very regimented. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it actually allowed us to really have some freedom. And uh, so the team arrived. Uh, it would have been on July uh, 14 minus 6. July 8th, the team arrived. Uh, we evangelized for six days we rented a hall in a um uh hotel and then actually about three days later we realized you know what we probably need a spillover room uh well it turned it out we ended up filling both rooms so we had 268 people at the first service oh my god after just sharing for six days on the street and uh it was an amazing um from the very get-go, uh, we had, in the first month, 31 baptisms in 31 days. Wow. So um, the Moscow Church, by April of the next year, we are having four baptisms a day in the church. So it truly was an exponential growth pattern. And then after 11 months, we then sent out three mission teams 
And uh, those mission teams were made up of um, uh, all the young Christians, including our team members. And uh, so we, by that time, the church in Moscow was over 600 members, and we had uh, um, three mission teams to, to and probably had uh, 80 small group leaders, 40 men, 40 women. We then rostered out our mission teams and sent out half of them, Gosh. which I can tell you put Moscow into a, into a shock right. by the end of the summer. Uh, all that loss, but then all those three churches, which were Kiev, Novosibirsk, and St. Petersburg, they all had daily baptisms in their first year. Hmm. So by the time the mission team had been started, by the time we'd been in Russia for two years, 2,000 people had been baptized. 2,002 years. 2,002 years, and the total membership was probably around 1,500. So our retention rate was very good. Um, it, we would we would struggle as churches do. There were there it would plateau and there would be a struggle. But initially, um, it actually went for four years without really pausing. And so by the mid '95, uh, we had almost 7,000 members in the Farmer Soviet Union. So the, the next two years were sort of recalibrating years. And then to be honest, they were very fruitful years because the next two years I realized, uh, and, and I really feel like Bible study and prayer and, and trying to think outside the box, I realized that we needed more models of leadership, more roles than simply this idea of evangelist and woman's ministry leader. We needed teachers, we needed shepherds. And so we started to implement what we called a shepherd's uh, role, where every region in the Moscow church, there was 10 regions, they had an evangelist, but they also had a non-full-time person who was the, the designated partner and, the, and as the shepherd of that region and uh, started to work on that plan, which really actually brought stability back in. And uh, yeah, from when, once things sort of got restabilized, uh, by the time we left two years later, uh, the churches had grown from 7,000 to 9,500. Oh, my gosh. And then it continued to grow for two years after we left to about 11,500. So, and when, um, when was that? When did you leave? We left in 99. 99. And we, we were asked to uh, go to Los Angeles and take charge of the worldwide administration and teaching ministry. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, let's but let's back up. That's that's phenomenal. That what an incredible decade. That's amazing, Tammy. I remember during that time seeing video um, of you performing in front of thousands. There were crowds. Uh, I think it was with Christian Ray Flores. I, I interviewed him uh, last week. And can you tell me a little bit about that? How did you develop your musical talents? Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Well, very, very briefly, I'm, I am a basically a self-taught uh, music lover, but I wish I had had the character of a Christian when I was a teenager. I would have, you know, or maybe actually, maybe God spared me because I feel like God rescued me. I worked full-time as a musician from the time I was about 16, or I should say I worked as a musician from the time I was 16. Full-time only started when I was 19. I actually quit. I dropped out of my Ivy League university to go be in a touring rock band 
And so I gained a lot of experience, um, but I have, I consider myself to have a very small little box that I can function well in. If I try to step out of my little musical box, it's not very pretty. (laughs) So actually I preceded Christian Ray. Christian became a disciple uh, rather late in the nineties. And by that time uh, I had relinquished my role as the uh, worship leader and music teacher to the brothers and sisters who had been raised up in the church, but it was a great thing to do in the beginning. And I think I had the only decent guitar for a while in the whole nation <laughs> brought with me. <laughs> so that, you know, that went a long way. It sounded good. And, you know, it sounded great. And you look great too. Very kind. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So you came back to Los Angeles and, and then you, develop the teaching. Now, Andy, I know you love to teach and this ties in here. You've, you've written books. Um, tell me a little bit about your teaching ministry and how you got into that. Well, I think by natural giftedness, I'm more of a teacher than I am an evangelist, at least the classic sort of model of evangelist that the International Churches of Christ had of a fairly introverted, I mean, extroverted person, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think speaking for me works because I have conviction about what I believe, but I don't feel like speaking works for me because I know how to speak, you know, like it's, it's like, that's the gift itself. Uh, I just think that I really do believe what the Bible says. And because I believe and it's the Bible, more power is conveyed when I, when I share it. Um, my natural giftedness lays in mathematics and uh, physics and I think uh, that also is good to bring to scripture because it, it brings a, I'm looking for patterns and framework and connection when I read scripture. And so uh, that's probably been my passion more than anything as I was a teacher type who learned how to be an evangelist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I got the, the best of two different worlds there uh, in some ways. Not that I was the best, but I got, I, I was blessed by both those things. Okay, so here's a question I have for both of you guys. You, you came off perhaps the, the greatest decade of numerical growth most disciples would ever see, most leaders would ever see. You were the, the, the leaders. You saw these mission teams. You saw the, the team go from 17 disciples to nine to 11,000 disciples spread all over Russia. How do you... How do you follow up with that? I mean, you know, for many leaders, it's it's really challenging to measure success. How how do you not just live in the the wake of that, always looking back to the glory days? How how do you deal with that, just emotionally and mentally? How do, how do you guys define success in a way where you can keep getting excited about what you're doing currently? Tammy, you want to answer that? Sure. I mean, I I think um, I remember saying to Andy and to other people around that time, it was weird because when we when we were asked to move, it wasn't our idea. When we were asked to leave Russia, um, I wasn't particularly ready, but I was in agreement. We were, quote, good disciples and we felt like we'll go wherever the need is. And if this is what, you know, seems to be the best thing, then amen, we'll go. Um, And I it definitely there was some. I felt definitely some questioning, raised eyebrows, like, wow, what happened? You guys sin out or, you know, like what happened? You're now you're in administration. That's clearly, you know, it's, it's not a glamorous ministry. It's not a numbers ministry. You're not growing the church anymore. And that 
that was so sad to me because I felt like, my goodness, we're all disciples, you know? I mean, I, I feel like a just serving a Bible talk of sisters, that, that could fill up your entire life and be a fulfilling, uh, you know, a filling no regrets life, to use your phrase. And I've always felt that way. So to me, I missed Russia because that was my home and I missed the relationships, but I didn't miss the you know, the big glory of, woo, we got all this, you know, all this acclaim going on. Because I honestly, we weren't really in touch with that. There was also a lot of incredibly hard work going on. And it was all about managing, you know, the quality of life of every average disciple in every small group anyway. And when you've got thousands of them, it's excruciatingly tough. Mm. So to be honest with you, I was, you know, I was looking forward to, um, you know, just seeing what God was going to do next. I didn't feel like we were a step down or, you know, it was somehow less than. I just felt like, okay, well, this is different. It's, But it's the same. Ministry is the same in a way, no matter what the size or where you are or, you know, sector leader, Bible talk leader, church leader. To me, the the, the most important stuff is the same. Right. Well, that, it points to the fact that you both must be deeply grounded spiritually in the grace of God because, that would be tough. That'd be, that'd be like a professional football player who's had an amazing career, and then all of a sudden he's at a loss because he's retired and he's in his 40s or something, and he's wondering, you know, my glory days are behind me. Um, how, how, have you guys, how have you guys structured in your life where you feel like, hey, we're, we're, we're still productive, we still feel good about what we're doing? You know what's interesting about that analogy is if I was a football player, uh, and I was a Christian, you'd say, but Andy, football playing isn't the most important part of your life. Mm. And to be honest, I, and I say this as soberly as possible, the ministry is not the most important part of my life. And what's interesting is I don't feel nostalgic actually in any way about what happened there. I am just grateful I got to see what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And be a part of what I've been a part of. That's right. But but I never, when when I was asked to take charge of administration and teaching, I believe no less in those two services to the church. Absolutely. Than I, than I do in any other leadership role. So, the weird thing is, is though, like Tammy said, we had a couple of very humorous phone calls, almost like there must be some secret sin out there, guys. Why, why are you being <laughs> taken back what what happened and we're like no there, there was nothing we were we were asked and we've you know tammy and i kind of anticipated the, the way that this meeting got set up in 99 we knew that, that someone's going to ask us to move we never dreamed we were moving back to america but they thought we actually kind of thought i thought we were going to go to another missions point that needed help that's what i had actually thought but i was ready to go and uh but i was ready to do whatever god was calling us to do that's impressive and uh, well and yeah well, well i, I want to say something i don't want to act like that's impressive because it's kind of like breathing i mean i didn't i wasn't doing it because i thought it was impressive you know what i'm saying like right. you do what you know you got to do and like it's, you do what you know is right and so it, there wasn't like this big sacrificial decision because that's not how i felt about mm. it like i i didn't feel like I, I lost anything. I didn't feel like I lost anything. Uh, I mean, I, I did lose. There was grieving in the losing of 
relationships, but not the success part of it, per se. Okay. So after you're in Los Angeles, you went to England. Is it Birmingham or yeah. Manchester? Birmingham. Birmingham. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, if, if I remember just scratching my head saying, what in the world is that couple doing in Birmingham, England? I mean, it just, it just made no sense to me at the time. And still I wonder, how'd you guys get there? I mean, that it just doesn't seem to fit with where you're going. You, you plan these major churches in Scandinavia and then in, in, in Russia. What happened? Well, pretty simple. Um, in 2005, uh, we were in L.A., and uh, it was really on my heart, and uh, Tammy's absolutely Sarah and a faith to go wherever wherever Abraham's going. So <laughs> uh, it was definitely on my heart to get back out onto the mission field. Uh, and uh, like whatever in L.A., there was, <clears throat> there was 10 more people to offer what I offered, whereas... Um, these other situations. And we'd worked with the UK churches uh, in 1990, uh, half of 89 and almost all of 90, we were in London. And so we were kind of in touch with just how hurt they were by things that had happened in the early 2000s. And uh, I actually, in my heart of hearts, would have loved to have gone to Scandinavia. Uh, but uh, Chris and Kim Reed also were looking to go back out on the mission field. And they had no connection to the UK churches, but were deeply connected to, uh, he was my right-hand uh, intern in planting Stockholm, and then he went out and planted Copenhagen. And so uh, it, you know, they wanted to go back, and, and there was really only finances for one couple to go to Scandinavia. So we very excitedly said, the more, the more we get out onto the field, the better. So Chris and, you know, we took our hat, our, our names off the table and Chris and Kim then actually became the couple, and they've done a fantastic job. Um, and then we went to the UK, one, because my son wasn't really showing linguistic aptitude at the time. And I was a little concerned. Uh, Russia's not really open. Just, I mean, by the, by the time we left Russia, uh, it was not really open to American missionaries, and it it hasn't been open for a few decades, really. It's, it's, it's even much stricter now. So um, we, we were looking at England, and to be honest, it, the, the needs of England were just so undeniable. Their membership had gone down almost two-thirds, and their staff, full-time ministry people, had gone from like 80 to 6. And so if I have a personality defect, it's a little bit like that looks impossibly hard, okay, <laughs> like I, I, I became, I became interested, um, and it was hard. It, it was not easy. Um, it was very hard. I, I, you know, we had the honor of being the first couple to go back out on the mission field from America, right? Uh, in two thousand and seven, um, but that we did it all wrong. Uh, nobody sent us. Um, we. We were so concerned about the church would know about the kind of leaders we were going to be. We didn't do very good homework to figure out what kind of church and state they were in. Now, there's some great disciples there, but it was a very, very weak situation, weaker than than we, we could have imagined when it come, came to leadership uh, potential of what what was there. Right. And um, 
so yeah, we we didn't have anyone sending us. That was a mistake. Uh, we we, oh, we didn't take anybody with us. I mean, I, I I'd say it was I, I would say it was one of my biggest uh, misplannings of my life was going back to Birmingham. Uh, though God blessed it, and the church, you know, uh, significantly grew while we were there, and and uh, saw some great development in youth youth ministry and students, but. But we, what we ourselves were amazingly uh, like stretched because we didn't have a partner with us there. We didn't have anyone that had sent us, so no one sent, spent, uh, felt responsible for us. Mm. And um, the Birmingham Church didn't even know that there'd been a cooperation proposal written when mm. we showed up to uh, interview with them. So uh, they were very, actually at the time, quite detached from the rest of the churches, but. But I saw a church willing for us to come, and uh, um, you know we, we thought about London possibly, but at the time the London regions did not want to be unified into one church. Uh, you may not know this, but we were in charge of the Middle East world sector still at that time from 2001 until 2010, and so I really didn't have enough uh, space to to pilot the reunification of London, that, that would have been more, more work than I had time because I was just a part-time employee actually in Birmingham. And I was half time working with the churches in the middle East traveling three I or four see. times a year there, et cetera. So okay. we, we were taking care of the middle East from, from Los Angeles. That did not work mm-hmm. time zone wise and distance wise. So the Birmingham was our base to fulfill that obligation and help the patriots. So thinking, but it was harder than we had anticipated. Uh, some per, some churches have maybe 10 potential, 100 people, there's 10 potential small group leaders. Uh, we really had, I'd say, three people, men, that were ready at the time. I see. Um, and because of that, it was just a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, I can say it work, but in in the background, but in the four years before we got to Birmingham, there'd been two baptisms. Our first year had a glorious three baptisms, and then the next year was five, and then next year was six, and probably seven. And I think the best year ever in our nine years there was 11. But the church almost doubled in that time that we were there. So um, depends how you sort of do the numbers, because there's only 57 people on the membership roll. But there were people in the wings that they they, they had left, but they, they weren't willing to call themselves members, but they weren't willing to leave yet either. So, <laughs> so you were there for nine years, from 2007 to 2016. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's a long time. I mean, it is. I mean, just, just the thought of it, post-Christian culture, um, European culture, that that would be so, so challenging, especially in light of the, the spectacular fruit being born just, you know, five or 10 years prior to that, that must've been such uh, an emotional shock to your system. Uh, you know, I, I think there's, this leads to another question. I, I, can I just make a statement? Sure, go ahead. What's weird about that is that's not how we feel about it. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Like that isn't how I respond to that change of circumstance. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you could get into my brain, you'd realize I, I was willing to be a missionary in the Churches of Christ 
maybe knowing I wouldn't be effective at all, <laughs> but that I was doing the right thing. Like, mm-hmm. like, like I didn't get my, my bar didn't get reset about who God is because of Russia. Mm-hmm. And the members, there was a church glorious to me than the fact that Moscow after three years was 1,800 members. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see those two. And the fact that Birmingham, where it was at, had 57 on the membership roll when we got there and 130 when we left, that also is no, like, I don't see those as, that's not where my uh, sense of God's awesome or I was successful or not come from. Okay, well, that's important. And I want to kind of drill down a little bit on that. You Do you feel the same way about that, Tammy? Absolutely. I I think, just to be really brief, I think, you know, sometimes into a family uh, with who has lots of hopes and dreams and expectations, right? People, if you get married, you have, you dream of having children, you have a child, and sometimes a special needs child comes along. And you probably have the same experience that we do that when, you know, you talk to some of these parents with special needs kids, they'll say, this child is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways the Birmingham experience was a little bit like taking care of a special needs child. Um, And there were the, you know, the, the, we did get a lot of, what what are you guys doing in Birmingham? You know? And I, and my response was, God is, God is doing great things and and somebody needs to love this child. Mm-hmm. Somebody it was abandoned and abused terribly. And somebody I think the heart of Jesus is to love it and and we learned so much there and raised our son and you know tremendously wonderful things happened. We have friends for life from that time and disciples that'll be in heaven from that time. And mm. so that's awesome. Very oh, meaningful. Okay, well, I've got to say, I, I I don't know how I would handle that. I would find it much more challenging than you did. I think that uh, it it's a reflection of your heart and your focus on God. That would be difficult for me emotionally. Let me let me tie something back. In two thousand three, our our family of churches, the International Churches of Christ, went through a major restructuring, uh, an upheaval in the churches. Um, one of the issues at the time was over the issue of accountability, statistics, keeping track of, of the growth. And so there was an emphasis on, on performance. Now, from a previous conversation, Andy, you were part of the process of monitoring, keeping track of things, and you had picked that up, from what I understand, from your dad monitoring the process of hatching eggs and things like that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think uh, for many of us who are in their 50s and 60s in the ministry, that was certainly a, a big part of our mindset. Well, um, in 1993, if not two, probably three, I wrote a study. Uh, I And uh, the study was called "Without, Without Fat, Without Facts, Faith is Fantasy." That was what I called it, and it was basically a study about when it comes to statistics that just like the Sabbath, uh, they are made for man, not man for for the Sabbath, not man for statistics. In other words, statistics is a simple tool that needs to be in the background of what you do, so you're 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 responsible in how you lead, but statistics are not what should drive your ministry. 
So I, I had that conviction. I mean, I carry with me that same conviction today. It's, it's like making a goal um, should be done very soberly uh, with faith. And, and my basic goal is usually just to do better than we've done in the past in a similar circumstance and situation. Right. In other words, my goal is let each, let everyone see your improvement. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so anything more than that in making a goal is like, like the Birmingham church, I'm just going to be blunt. And sadly, the people most responsible for this are long gone. So it's, it's not an affront to anybody, but the, uh, um, the Birmingham church started and after nine months had baptized probably 50 people and actually had a pretty good base, but they'd been told that they had to baptize a hundred people in their first year. So in that three months, they began to operate on some very different principles and made their goal, but never recovered from what they did to themselves Mm. in that, in that letting the goal become more important than what they were doing. And so it is, it is a very, this is an incredibly important concept that statistics are used properly. And, uh, you know, my goal isn't to have a 98.6 temperature. My goal is to be healthy. <laughs> and, and therefore setting any numerical goal that is in fact making it m- more important than it is, 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 is unwise. And so, um, I've always kept good statistics. That, that is why I was able to pull together the, uh, the, the, prog- the, the whole study that I did and published two years ago was because actually I had my own, my own uh, database to draw on that had already been working on. And then because I paid attention, I'd kept sort of legacy copies of various things. And, but, but never like the idea of setting a goal without learning from it, like, like, like that's, re- that doesn't make any sense to me. So like, I don't know. I, I actually have not, I haven't changed my mind about how, how I've used statistics in 30 years. Right. Well, I, I think um, that certainly you as the author, you had the right perspective, but when it got applied in a one size fits all template to every person, and then everyone adds their own insecurities and fears to it, it can cause a lot of problems. And it certainly did in, in certain cases. And so uh, it's just very interesting. Let me, let me ask you this. If, if you, um, we're advising a younger leader who wants to know how do I measure my performance? What should I? What are the indicators that that tell me I'm on the right track or my church is doing well? What are healthy parameters? What? How would you recommend coming up with a uh, a simple way of measuring progress and health? Well, I think the first thing is uh, the first thing to do is start measuring. Mm-hmm. In other words, just you got to you got to create a baseline of what what is your group, what defines your group. Mm-hmm. So if a if a group has you know in the last year performed, uh, been used by God to convert nine more people, uh, and to talk, then go to for the group without giving them any other uh, training. Uh, you got to change the group. If you're going to say to the group, let's this year do twenty. 
My question is, so how will the group be different? Mm -hmm. the, the difference cannot simply be last year we baptized nine, this year we're baptizing 20. That's, <laughs> not, that, that's not the difference. The difference is, you know, so when if I'm going to take an assessment of a church, um, nobody wants to baptize and convert more people than God does. Mm -hmm. So the fact that God, that's not happening in certain places. Right. Uh, if you if you think about us as trees, then John 15 comes to mind and branches mm -hmm. because simply the branches are too busy with other things that need to yep. get pruned off because there's actually no space for more disciples right. in that church mm -hmm. because there's no room in the hearts of those disciples mm -hmm. to care for those people. Mm -hmm. And it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but... You know, the Spirit the spirit takes our prayers to God, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the Spirit is sort of our me, our medium. I won't say mediator, but medium. Like, let's, right. we're, we're connected to God through the Spirit. And so someone in their words say, God, help me convert five, five more people this year. That's what they're saying. But in their hearts, they're saying, God, if you put another challenging person in my life, I'm going to die. That's what their <laughs> heart is saying. My question is, the, the Holy Spirit's facing a little dilemma. Right. Which message do I deliver to God? Right. My conviction is he delivers the one that's on your heart, not the one that's on your mm -hmm. lips. Totally. So be careful. Be careful with your lips because God might hold you accountable for what you say with your lips. But you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. In, in other words, the church has got to want to grow and understand mm -hmm. the sacrifice necessary to grow, and it will grow. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's 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 a broad discussion. We could go on. Tammy, did you want to add anything in there in that discussion about statistics and accountability, things like that? No, I I agree. I think it it all comes down again. We were talking earlier about uh, some of the questions you've given us, and we we definitely I think agree. Andy can comment more on this, but uh, it's success is going to be more from a bottom up rather than a top down. And mm -hmm. so the stats and the, and the analysis, it all begins in how is, what's the experience like of the average disciple and kind mm -hmm. of to go back to what Andy was saying, if my little Bible talk doesn't have the faith or the time, you know, to reach out or we're not, we're not set up for that, then to put an expectation on them that, you know, we're going to grow without being honest and really ministering to the needs and make, you know, having a basic health, whether that means changing up the Bible talk a little bit, um, balancing out mm -hmm. needs and strengths more, or just injecting some faith or sitting back and taking time. Maybe, maybe we have just had a death and we need to grieve mm -hmm. for a while. And, right. you know, you, we just can't all drive forward at the same speed all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible. Right. So. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, you guys have had an incredibly productive and fruitful career in so many different ways, teaching, missionary work. People are listening. They're going, "Wow, I don't, I don't think I can ever match that. That's a pretty amazing. How, how, you know, that's incredible. How could I even approach that?" Can you tell me about a time when you came back from a setback or a failure, and what advice would you give to people who are? dealing with failure or discouragement and they're they're wrestling with their, their faith and they're going man oh man this is this is really tough right now well i think i think the thing that 
is the most discouraging is when you feel alone and you feel like no one else believes in you. Um, I had a period of that, uh, and it, 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 I'm not going to get too detailed into it, but I definitely had a period where, you know, I was being told I was a failure. I didn't necessarily feel like a failure, but I definitely felt like something was failing that that's what other people were telling me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, the truth is though, how you respond to that kind of shows what, what your motivation is. And, uh, I think in that time, what I learned was I'm not, I, as much as I'm doing this for men, for others, that's when, uh, th- these things bother me, but it's the more mm-hmm. that I'm just doing it for God and to be faithful, mm-hmm. uh, the more that these things don't bother me. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, our, my difficult times are, been are more related to uh, see misunderstandings with some other leaders about a certain thing that's important to me or and maybe they have a different view on it or um yeah um i I think i mean personally the i mean if you, you know in the measure that you're using rob in our christian lives the there's only been three years of my life where I've been leading a ministry where it didn't grow. Mm. And uh, two of those would have been after uh, 2003, though even that's not quite true because the Middle East continued to grow every year after mm. 2003. Uh, but my but back where I was in L.A. was struggling a little bit. Um, and one year in Moscow. So if it comes down to numerical growth, uh, I, I expect the church to grow every year, and my experience is it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the 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 things that have been more discouraging have been relational. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and those can be very discouraging. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's just been and it's, it usually boils down to we're not understanding each other. And uh, what I find difficult is sometimes sometimes the people that are really hurting me are actually really hurting themselves. Right, They're right. hurting. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And I don't really know how to help them uh, without it just being more painful. Mm-hmm. And so in trying to figure out how to help them without adding to their pain, um, you know, being uh, that th- these are not my strengths. This is not just who, you know, uh, that, that is not, there's no easy answer for me in, right. that, in that kind of scenario. Right. So, well, how about you, Tammy? Yeah, I think for me, my, I mean, I'm a little bit more all over the map than Andy's. I think he was blessed in being able to very early on have a foundation in the word of God and a stable family. I came into the kingdom a little more uh, broken. And so I definitely was much more affected by performance. If I felt like I was pouring out my strength and nobody was becoming a Christian, I felt like an absolute failure and had years of that where I just thought, you know, I'd sit in lessons and I'd hear, you know, you need to believe you're called. And I'd go, well, that's not me, <laughs> uh, you know, or, uh, you know, all these things. I mean, I was I was tormented for quite a while in the ministry because I just felt, you know, I was self-focused. I was, you know, I, it was just very hard. And I think that God all through God is so faithful through all of that time while I was so worried about what other people thought and how do I look in other people's eyes and am I ever going to, you know, 
live up to the expectations that others have and I have and I think God has. Um, while I was fretting and fretting and fretting and, you know, working myself to the bone to try to prove something to me and God and whoever, um, I think God was just patiently purifying my heart through my daily quiet times. Remember, I was new to this whole thing. I didn't grow up as a believer. I, you know, I became a Christian at 25. And so I was starting from zero, really. I had to, you know, read the Bible during the Bible, start there. And, um, and after about six or seven years, I feel like God purged, you know, blows and wounds, blows and wounds, cleanse away <laughs> uh, evil. And I think God had, had purged enough, the suffering had purged enough of my humanistic uh, worldview and my, you know, brokenness and healed me enough so that I really trusted God and his love for me a lot more. And so I could weather, you know, the fickle opinions of other people or the ups and downs of ministry a lot better. And any time right. that I've, that I have gotten discouraged or depressed after that, it's been because I haven't had enough of God. I haven't mm. grown enough in my own personal relationship with God to meet the greater demands of this new stage of life. And I, my experience has just been, it gets more challenging, not, not less challenging as we age and move from stage to stage. And right. so, you know, the more, it's just more of God. And I know right. that just get to a point where they a safe place. And I think with those times, I've just had to, some wise person said, you've got to go through the conflict with God in order to get back the intimacy with God. no other way to do it other than that hard spiritual work that only we ourselves an open Bible right. and break through that barrier, whatever it is. And I believe that God will bring us back to a well, place of peace. Well, let's talk a little bit about that right, right now. When we're recording this, we're going through the coronavirus pandemic. We're, um, in a lockdown or quarantine self shelter at home. What's your, what's your routine? What are you doing right now to stay strong spiritually? Like what, what does your day look like? Give us, give me an ideal day of what's, what's happening in your life. Well, it's a, it's a great day for introverts. I'm a, <laughs> <laughs> Min, ministry's never been better. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I uh, bought a domain name, I'm going to say, in 2004, and finally have a working website. That's great. <laughs> because of the coronavirus. Good for you. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I'm very excited about it. It's, it's an archive. It's a historic archive of, of, of notes and, and events of what we've seen in our mission work over the past you know, it's called missionstory.com. Wow. So uh, I'm just getting a couple of bugs out of the basic setup of it, but it's already got some kind of cool stuff up there. And it, I, I, my goal will be to post something new every day. And I have enough stuff to go for two years, wow. actually. So, but, but getting it ready to post takes a little work. I'm going to have enough stuff in my archive, but it's just a matter of, it's not everything just as paste and click and paste. But anyway, um, I think, uh, yeah, we, we're kind of spoiled. We could have ended up in much more austere situation than we're in. Right. Uh, I'm sitting here right now looking at a 7,000 
foot mountain with a glacier on top. Mm. Uh, and, and it's quite, quite inspiring. And for some days you can't see it because we are on the West coast. So it's right. just covered in clouds. But, um, uh, no, I've been using this time to focus on, um, writing and, uh, I just finished a, another course. I'm, I'm prepping to, uh, I'm prepping to get ready to start a D-Min program. Mm -hmm. but That's a do I needed doctor to, of ministry. Doctor of ministry, yeah. But I needed to upgrade my uh, master's degree to enter into this D-Min program. Okay. So, how about um, how about you, Tammy? What are you doing with your time? What's what's your day looking like? Well, we are we are, um, as I said, we're sort of sheltering in place with our friend Lynn Green, whose husband Scott passed away exactly two years ago. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I'm really glad that we are here because we're close to our son, but we're also on in Lynn's, um, you know, uh, presence. And that means that, you know, we have family meals every day. We cook together. We, I make sure I spend some time every day. We pray. We, I'm helping her out with her. She's got a farm. She thought this was going to be her retirement plan, long-term retirement plan. And then her husband died. Mm. So a little bit of a change up there. Um, so that's encouraging to me. I, I There's some things about this pandemic n new normal that I love like that, for example, mm -hmm. being with Lynn mm -hmm. and some things that I absolutely hate, um, which is having to do everything remotely. Our, we could be busy on, you know, online 12 hours a day, easy, 18 hours a day, easy right, right. without and it's exhausting, right. you know, it's not the same as face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got trained as a grief recovery specialist a few years ago. We translated the grief recovery handbook into Russian, just came out. And so I do a lot of grief recovery online, which there's endless need for that. So I find, I feel life is incredibly fulfilling working with the ICOC women's service team as well, with lots and lots of uh, online conversations and events and things like that, they, it only increases. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to go on forever, and I really appreciate your time. I just have two more questions for you. Let's just say you wake up tomorrow and you find out you've been put in charge of bringing revival to our family of churches. Where would you start? What would your first three steps be? Well, I... I think I woke up four years ago and thought I was in charge. <laughs> I was going to say that's so I feel like we wake up, I think like we wake up every morning and we, we don't feel like we're necessarily in charge, but that's what, that's what wakes us up every morning right there. How do we revive our family of churches? We feel very uh, much in the middle of that. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think that the answer, I mean, the thing I'll, have to say is that the answer is not a top-down answer mm -hmm. and therefore I need to revive what I can touch and work with yeah mm -hmm. and then affect as many others as possible I think this is a very grassroots answer I um, I think people that are looking for what I will call a corporate solution to our issues as a family are missing the fact that this begins in the heart of an individual. And um, it's not about one person. It, it, it's about, it's not about one person affecting everyone else. It's one person working then through others. And that actually is going to happen 
uh, but going upwards. And, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be a strength and a resource to people. Um, I'm very comfortable with the idea that I have not been a lead evangelist for four years. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't, I, I got people who they keep asking me, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I, I very much believe in the seasons of service and, uh, I do think there's young man's work and there's older men's work. I'm quite happy to be more in the role of a mentor and trainer. Um, but yeah, what would I do? Well, I, I think honestly, this is about, this is about God. I think it, this is about getting small group back to where it's supposed to be. Yep. And to be honest, uh, most people in our movement today don't maybe even haven't had a great small group experience. Um, I don't have a stat for it because you need more data than I'm able to get, but I would say the retention rate of the converts of the beginning of a church is way higher than what happens five years later. Right. And I think it's because of what they're in on at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think, I think what we, what we are, one of our problems is if we get too structured then we're training people to wait to be told what to do. And I believe that you got to set people free. You give them tools, you give them training, but then you say, what's God put on your heart? Right. So this would be a whole long discussion, but right. I think it's an impo- right. important would, point. What would you do, Tammy? What's same thing or is anything different? Yeah, I, I think that... It, I honestly feel like that's exactly how I wake up every morning. <laughs> I feel like I'm investing every every uh, gift I have, and you know, in in trying to do just that, bring revival to our families of churches. As much as I, as one individual, am able to do that, and so to me, it comes down to again, like I said, the the experience of the average person in your church. You know, what's it like? Are they What's their quiet time like? What's their discipleship relationships like? What's their faith like? What's their, are they at peace? You know, that that's, we've got to care about the individual experience and multiply that mm-hmm. through the church. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's great. Last question. What advice would you give a person, man or woman, who wants to make a difference, wants to live a no regrets life? Well, tongue in cheek, I have to say, uh, when you repent and have godly sorrow, that leaves no regret. (laughs) That's right. So (laughs) repent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I think you regret happens because you're looking backwards. And I think uh, a no regrets life means that you're looking forward Mm -hmm. and you've dealt with the past correctly. Mm-hmm. No matter what it's been, you've said to God, thank you for that. Thank you for mm-hmm. the good and the bad. Right. I think I think making peace with your life is very important. So no regrets isn't about whether I'm going to succeed or not. No regrets is how I approach life I have it right now. And right. so living life in the moment to the full, exactly. I think, is what takes away regret. Yep, there you go. Tammy? Completely agree. Couldn't have said it better. Okay. Okay. 
Well, I certainly appreciate the time with you guys. I could, I've got so many more questions that have arisen just from our discussion. I'm so interested in what you're doing in Eastern Europe to revive the churches there. That, that can be a discussion from a, for a different time, but I know that you're working hard to bring revival to churches that were planted 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you know, the, your work in the churches is amazing. Thank you so much for your time on the phone. I, I very much appreciate it. Love to you and yours, Rob. Thank you. Yep. Love you, Rob. Admire you tons. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. And thank you for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire (laughs) you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed this program, I'd like to ask you to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a great day and make this life count.